Hello and welcome back to a very special episode of the Revolting Women podcast. And today we're kind of being less revolting than usual um, in that I am going to read you My Side of the Matter by Truman Capote. This is the author of uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's and uh, In Cold Blood, <clears throat> which was a non-fiction novel that told the true story of a brutal murder. Uh, and this book is a short story, it's a novella, it's literally 50 pages, it would take no longer than an hour, I think, to listen to this whole thing, so I think it would be the perfect background noise story, uh, and I think it's certainly worth listening to, and being like, yeah, I've read Truman Capote's My Side of the Matter, I thought it was so artistic, so let's just get right into it. My Side of the Matter, Truman Capote. Chapter 1. Miriam. For several years, Mrs. H.T. Miller had lived alone in a pleasant apartment, two rooms with kitchenette, in a remodelled brownstone near the East River. She was a widow. Mr. H.T. Miller had left a reasonable amount of insurance. Her interests were narrow, she had no friends to speak of and she rarely journeyed farther than the corner grocery. The other people in the house never seemed to notice her. Her clothes were matter-of-fact, her hair iron-grey, clipped and casually waved. She did not use cosmetics. Her features were plain and inconspicuous, and on her last birthday she was sixty-one. Her activities were seldom spontaneous. She kept the two rooms immaculate, smoked an occasional cigarette, prepared her own meals, and tended a canary. Then she met Miriam. It was snowing that night. Mrs Miller had finished drying the supper dishes and was thumbing through an afternoon paper when she saw an advertisement of a picture playing at a neighbourhood theatre. The title sounded good, so she struggled into her beaver coat, laced her galoshes and left the apartment, leaving one light burning in the foyer. She found nothing more disturbing than a sensation of darkness. The snow was fine, falling gently, yet not making an impression on the pavement. The wind from the river cut only at street crossings. Mrs Miller hurried, her head bowed, oblivious as a mole burrowing a blind path. She stopped at a drugstore and bought a package of peppermints. A long line stretched in front of the box office. She took her place at the end. There would be, a tired voice groaned, a short wait for all seats. Mrs Miller rummaged in her leather handbag till she collected exactly the correct change for her admission. The line seemed to be taking its own time, and looking around for some distraction, she suddenly became conscious of a little girl standing under the edge of the marquee. Her hair was the longest and strangest Miss Miller had ever seen, absolutely silver-white, like an albino's. It flowed waist-length in smooth, loose lines. She was thin and fragilely constructed. There was a simple, special elegance in the way she stood with her thumb in the pockets of a tailored plum velvet coat. Mrs Miller felt obviously excited, and when the little girl glanced toward her, she smiled warmly. The little girl walked over and said, Would you care to do me a favour? I'd be glad to if I can, said Mrs Miller. It's quite easy. I merely want you to buy a ticket for me. They won't let me in otherwise. Here, I have the money. And gracefully, she handed Miss Miller two dimes and a nickel. They went over to the theatre together. An usherette directed them to a lounge. In twenty minutes the picture would be over. I feel just like a genuine criminal, said Miss Miller gaily as she sat down. I mean, that sort of thing's against the law, isn't it? 
I do hope I haven't done anything wrong. Your mother knows where you are, dear. I mean, she does, doesn't she? The little girl said nothing. She unbuttoned her coat and folded it across her lap. Her dress underneath was prim and dark blue. A gold chain dangled about her neck, and her fingers, sensitive and musical-looking, toyed with it. Examining her more attentively, Mrs Miller decided the truly distinctive feature was not her hair, but her eyes. They were hazel, steady, lacking, any childlike quality whatsoever. Because of their size, they seemed to consume her small face. Mrs Miller offered a peppermint. "'What's your name, dear?' Miriam, she said, as though, in some curious way, it were information already familiar. Why, isn't that funny? My name's Miriam, too. And it's not a terribly common name, either. Now, don't tell, your, don't tell me your last name's Miller. Just Miriam. But isn't that funny? Moderately, said Miriam, and rolled the peppermint on her tongue. Mrs Miller flushed and shifted uncomfortably. You have such a large vocabulary for such a little girl. Do I? Well, yes, said Mrs Miller, hastily changing the topic. Do you like movies? I really wouldn't know, said Miriam. I've never been before. Women began filling the lounge. The rumble of the newsreel bombs exploded in the distance. Mrs Miller rose, tucking her purse under her arm. I guess I'd better be running now if I want to get a seat, she said. It was nice to have met you. Miriam nodded, ever so slightly. It snowed all week. Wheels and footsteps moved soundlessly on the street as if the business of living continued secretly behind a pale but impenetrable curtain. In the falling quiet there was no sky or earth, only snow lifting in the wind, frosting the window glass, chilling the rooms, deadening and hushing the city. At all hours it was necessary to keep a lamp lighted, and Mrs Miller lost track of the days. Friday was no different from Saturday, and on Sunday she went to the grocery, closed of course. That evening she scrambled eggs and fixed a bowl of tomato soup. Then after putting on a flannel robe and cold creaming her face, she propped herself up in bed with a hot water bottle under her feet. She was reading the times when the doorbell rang. At first she thought it must be a mistake and whoever it was would go away, but it rang and rang and settled to a persistent buzz. She looked at the clock. A little after eleven. It did not seem possible. She was always asleep by ten. Climbing out of bed, she trotted barefoot across the living room. I'm coming, please be patient. The latch was caught. She turned it this way, and the way the bell never paused an instant. Stop it, she cried. The bolt gave way, and she opened the door an inch. What in heaven's name? Hello, said Miriam. Oh, why, hello, said Mrs Miller, stepping hesitantly into the hall. You're that little girl. I thought you'd never answer, but I kept my finger on the button. I knew you were home. Aren't you glad to see me? Mrs Miller did not know what to say. Miriam, she saw, wore the same plum velvet coat, and had now also a beret to match. Her white hair was braided in two shining plaits and looped at the ends with enormous white ribbons. Since I've waited so long, you could at least let me in, she said. It's awfully late. Miriam regarded her blankly. What difference does that make? Let me in, it's cold out here, and I have on a a silk dress. Then with a gentle gesture, she urged Mrs Miller aside and passed her into the apartment. She dropped her coat and beret on a chair. She was indeed wearing a silk dress. White silk. White silk in February. The skirt was beautifully pleated, and the sleeves had long. It made a faint rustle as she strolled about the room. I like your place, she said. I like the rug. Blue's my favourite colour. She touched a paper rose in a vase on the coffee table. Imitation, she commanded wanly. How sad. Aren't imitations sad? She seated herself on the sofa, daintily spreading her skirt. 
"'What do you want?' asked Mrs. Miller. "'Sit down,' said Miriam. "'It makes me nervous to see people stand.' Mrs. Miller sank to a hassock. "'What do you want?' she repeated. "'You know, I don't think you're glad I came.' For a second time, Mrs. Miller was without an answer. Her hand motioned vaguely. Miriam giggled and pressed back on a mound of chintz pillows. Mrs. Miller observed that the girl was less pale than she remembered. Her cheeks were flushed. "'How did you know where I lived?' Miriam frowned. "'There's no question at all. "'What's your name? "'What's mine? "'But I'm not listed in the phone book. "'Oh, let's talk about something else,' Mrs Miller said. "'Your mother must be insane to let a child like you "'wander round at all hours of the night, "'and in such ridiculous clothes. "'She must be out of her mind.' Miriam got up and moved to a corner "'where a covered birdcage hung from a ceiling chain. "'She peeked beneath the cover. "'It's a canary,' she said. "'Would you mind if I woke him? "'I'd like to hear him sing.' "'Leave Tommy alone,' said Mrs Miller anxiously. "'Don't you dare wake him.' "'Certainly,' said Miriam. "'But I don't see why I can't hear him sing.' "'And then, have you anything to eat? "'I'm starving. "'Even milk and a jam sandwich would be fine.' "'Look,' said Mrs Miller, arising from the hassock. "'Look, if I made some nice sandwiches, "'will you be a good child and run along home? "'It's past midnight, I'm sure.' "'It's snowing,' reproached Miriam, "'and cold and dark. "'Well, you shouldn't have come here to begin with,' "'said Mrs Miller, struggling to control her voice.' I can't help the weather. If you want anything to eat, you'll have to promise to leave. Miriam brushed a a braid against her cheek. Her eyes were thoughtful, as if weighing the proposition. She turned toward the birdcage. Very well, she said. I promise. How old is she? Ten? Eleven? Mrs Miller in the kitchen unsealed a jar of strawberry preserves and cut four slices of bread. She poured a glass of milk and paused to light a cigarette. And why has she come? Her hand shook as she held the match fascinated till it burned her finger. The canary was singing, singing as he did in the morning and at no other time. Miriam, she called. Miriam, I told you not to disturb Tommy. There was no answer. She called again. All she heard was the canary. She inhaled the cigarette and discovered she had lighted the cork tip end and, ugh, she really mustn't lose her temper. She carried the food in on a tray and set it on the coffee table. She saw first that the birdcage still wore its night cover and Tommy was singing, It gave her a queer sensation. And no one was in the room. Mrs Miller went through an alcove leading to her bedroom. At the door, she caught her breath. What are you doing, she said. Miriam glanced up, and in her eyes there was a look that was not ordinary. She was standing by the bureau, a jewel case opened before her. For a minute, she studied Mrs Miller, forcing their eyes to meet, and she smiled. There's nothing good here, she said, but I like this. Her hand held a cameo brooch. It's charming. I suppose. Perhaps you'd better put it back, said Mrs Miller, feeling suddenly the need of some support. She leaned against the door frame. Her head was unbearably heavy. A pressure weighted the rhythm of her heartbeat. The light seemed to flutter defectively. Please, child, a gift from my husband. But it's beautiful and I want it, said Miriam. Give it to me. As she stood, striving to shape a sentence which would somehow save the brooch, it came to Mrs Miller that there was no one to whom she might turn. She was alone, a fact that had not been amongst her thoughts for a long time. Its sheer emphasis was stunning. But here in her own room was the hushed snow city, where evidences could not ignore, or she knew she was startling, clarity, resist. Miriam ate ravenously, and when the sandwiches and milk were gone, her fingers made cobweb movements over the plate, gathering crumbs. The cameo gleamed on her blouse, the blonde profile like a trick reflection of its wearer. That was very nice, she sighed. Then now an almond cake or a cherry would be ideal. Sweets are lovely, don't you think? Mrs Miller was perched precariously on the hassock, smoking a cigarette. 
Her hairnet had slipped lopsided, and loose strands straggled down her face. Her eyes were stupidly concentrated on nothing, and her cheeks were mottled in red patches, as though a fierce slap had left permanent marks. Is there candy? A cake? Mrs Miller tapped Ash on the rug. Her head swayed lightly as she tried to focus her eyes. You promised to leave if I made sandwiches, she said. Dear me, did I? You mustn't fret, said Miriam. I'm only teasing. She picked up her coat, slung it over her arm, and arranged her beret in front of the mirror. Presently, she bent down to Mrs Miller and whispered, Kiss me goodnight. Please, I'd rather not, said Mrs Miller. Miriam lifted a shoulder, arched an eyebrow. As you like, she said, and went directly to the coffee table, seized the vase containing the paper roses, and carried it to where the hard surface of the floor lay bare, and hurled it downward. Glass sprayed in all directions, and she stamped her foot on the bouquet. Then slowly she walked to the door, but before closing it, she looked back at Mrs Miller with a slyly innocent curiosity. Mrs Miller spent the next day in bed, rising once to feed the canary and drink a cup of tea. She took her temperature and had none, yet her dreams were feverishly agitated. Their unbalanced mood lingered even as she lay staring wide-eyed at the ceiling. One dream threaded through the others like an elusively mysterious theme in a complicated symphony, and the scenes it depicted were sharply outlined, as though sketched by a hand of gifted intensity. A small girl, wearing a bridal gown and a wreath of leaves, led a grey procession down a mountain path, and among them there was an unusual silence, till a woman at the rear asked, "'Where is she taking us?' "'No one knows,' said an old man marching in front. "'But isn't she pretty?' volunteered a third voice. "'Isn't she like a frost flower, so shining and white?' Tuesday morning she woke up feeling better. Harsh slats of sunlight, slanting through Venetian blinds, shed a disrupting light on her unwholesome fancies. She opened the window to discover a thawed, mild spring day, a sweep of clean new clouds crumpled against a vastly blue, out-of-season sky. From the low line of rooftops she could see the river and smoke curving from tugboat sacks in the warm wind. A great silver truck ploughed through the snow-banked street, its machine sound humming on the air. After straightening the apartment, she went to the grocer's, cashed a cheque and continued to Schroft's, where she ate breakfast and chatted happily with the waitress. Oh, it was a wonderful day, more like a holiday, and it would be so foolish to go home. She boarded a Lexington Avenue bus and rode up to 86th Street. It was here that she had decided to do a little shopping. She had no idea what she wanted or needed, but she idled along, intent only upon the passers-by, brisk and preoccupied, who gave her a disturbing sense of separateness. It was while waiting at the corner of 3rd Avenue that she saw the man, an old man, bow-legged and stooped under an armload of bulging packages. He wore a shabby brown coat and a checkered cap. Suddenly, she realised they were exchanging a smile. There was nothing friendly about this smile. It was merely two cold flickers of recognition, but she was certain she had never seen him before. He was standing next to an L-pillar, and as she crossed the street, he turned and followed her. He kept quite close. From the corner of her eye, she watched his reflection wavering on the shop windows. Then in the middle of the block, she stopped and faced him. He stopped also and cocked his head, grinning. But what could she say, do, here in the broad daylight on 86th Street? It was useless, and despising her own helplessness, she quickened her steps. Now, 2nd Avenue is a dismal street, made from scraps and ends, part cobblestone, part asphalt, part cement, and its atmosphere is desertation is permanent. Mrs Miller walked five blocks without meeting anyone, and all the while the steady crunch of the footfalls in the snow stayed near. 
and when she came to a florist's shop, the sound was still with her. She hurried inside and watched through the glass door as the old man passed. He kept his eyes straight ahead and didn't slow his pace, but he did one strange thing, telling thing. He tipped his cap. Six white ones, did you say? asked the florist. Yes, she told him. White roses. From there, she went to a glassware store and selected a vase, presumably a replacement for the one Miriam had broken, although the price was intolerable and the vase itself, she thought, grotesquely vulgar. But a series of unaccountable purchases had begun, as if by prearranged plan, a plan of which she had not the least knowledge nor control. She bought a bag of glazed cherries, and at a place called the Knickerbocker Bakery, she paid 40 cents, 40 cents for six almond cakes. Within the last hour, the weather had turned cold again, like blurred lenses. Winter clouds cast a shade over the sun, and the skeleton of an early dusk-coloured sky. A damp mist mixed with the wind, and the voices of a few children, who romped high on the mountains of gutter snow, seemed lonely and cheerless. Soon the first flake fell, and when Mrs Miller reached the brownstone house, snow was falling in a swift screen, and foot tracks vanished as they were printed. The white roses were arranged decoratively in the vase. The glazed cherries shone on a ceramic plate. The almond cakes, dusted with sugar, awaited a hand. The canary fluttered on its swing and picked at a bar of seed. At precisely five, the doorbell rang. Mrs Miller knew who it was. The hem of her housecoat trailed as she crossed the floor. Is that you, she called. Naturally, said Miriam, the word resounding shrilly from the hall. Open this door. Go away, said Mrs Miller. She returned to the living room, lighted a cigarette, sat down and calmly listened to the buzzer, on and on and on. You might as well leave. I have no intention of letting you in. Shortly, the bell stopped. For possibly ten minutes, Mrs Miller did not move. Then, hearing no sound, she concluded Miriam had gone. She tiptoed to the door and opened it a sliver. Miriam was half reclining atop a cardboard box, with a beautiful French doll cradled in her arms. Really, I thought you were never coming, she said peevishly. Here, help me get this in. It's awfully heavy. It was not spell-like compulsion that Mrs Miller felt, but rather a curious passivity. She brought in the box. Miriam, the doll. Miriam curled up on the sofa, not troubling to remove her coat or beret, and watched disinterestedly as Mrs Miller dropped the box and stood trembling, trying to catch her breath. Thank you, she said. In the daylight, she looked pinched and drawn, her hair less luminous. The French doll she was loathing wore an exquisite powdered wig and its idiot glass sought solace in Miriam's. I have a surprise, she continued. Look into the box. Kneeling, Mrs. Mirror parted the flaps and lifted out another doll. Then a blue dress, which she recalled as the one Miriam had worn that first night at the theatre. And of the remainder, she said, It's all clothes. Why? Because I've come to live with you, said Miriam, twisting a cherry stem. Wasn't it nice of you to buy me the cherries? But you can't. For God's sake, go away. Go away and leave me alone. And the roses and the almond cakes? How really wonderfully generous. You know, these cherries are delicious. The last place I lived was with an old man. He was terribly poor, and we never had any good things to eat. But I think I'll be happy here. She paused to snuggle her doll closer. Now if you'll just show me where to put my things. Mrs Miller's face dissolved into a mask of ugly red lines. She began to cry and it was unnatural, tearless sort of weeping, as though not having wept for a long time she had forgotten how. Carefully she edged backward until she touched the door. She fumbled through the hall and down the stairs to a landing below, 
She pounded frantically on the door of the first apartment she came to. A short, red-headed man answered, and she pushed past him. "'Say, what the hell is this?' he said. "'Anything wrong, lover?' asked a young woman who appeared from the kitchen, drying her hands. And it was to her that Mrs. Miller turned. "'Listen,' she cried. "'I'm ashamed to be behaving like this, but... "'Well, I'm Mrs. H.T. Miller, and I live upstairs, and...' She pressed her hand over her face. It sounds so absurd. The woman guided her to a chair while the man excitedly racketed pocket change. Yeah? I live upstairs, and there's this little girl visiting me. I suppose that I'm afraid of her. She won't leave, and I can't make her, and she's going to do something terrible. She's already stolen my cameo, but she's about to do something worse. Something terrible. The man asked. Is she a relative, huh? Mrs. Miller shook her head. I don't know who she is. Her name's Miriam, but I don't know for certain who she is. You've got to calm down, honey, said the woman, stroking Mrs. Miller's arm. Harry, he'll tend to this kid. Go on, lover. And Mrs. Miller said, the door's open, 5A. After the man left, the woman brought a towel and bathed Mrs. Miller's face. You're very kind, Mrs. Miller said. I'm sorry to act like such a fool, only this wicked child. Sure, honey, consoled the woman. Now, you better take it easy. Mrs. Miller rested her head on the crook of her arm. She was quiet enough to be asleep. The woman turned a radio dial, a piano and a husky voice filled the silence, and the woman, tapping her foot, kept excellent time. Maybe we ought to go up too, she said. I don't want to see her again. I don't want to be anywhere near her. Aha, uh-huh, but what you should have son. What should you should have, oh Christ, what you should have done? You should have called the cops. Presently they heard the man on the stairs. He strode into the room, frowning and scratching the back of his neck. Nobody there, he said honestly embarrassed. She must have beat it. Harry, you're a jerk, announced the woman. We've been sitting here the whole time and we would have seen. She stopped abruptly, for the man's glance was sharp. I looked all over, he said, and there just ain't nobody there. Nobody, understand? Tell me, said Mrs. Miller, rising. Tell me, did you see a large box or a doll? No, ma'am, I didn't. And the woman, as if delivering a verdict, said, Well, for crying out loud. Mrs. Miller entered her apartment softly. She walked to the centre of the room and stood quite still. No, in a sense it had not changed. The roses, the cakes and the cherries were in place. But this was an empty room. Emptier than if the furnishings and the familiars were not present. Lifeless and petrified as a funeral parlour. The sofa loomed before her with a new strangeness. Its vacancy had a terrible meaning that would have been less penetrating and terrible had Miriam been curled on it. She gazed fixedly at the space where she remembered setting the box, and for a moment the hassock spun desperately. And she looked through the window. Surely the river was real. Surely snow was falling. But then one could not be certain witness to anything. Miriam so vividly there, and yet where was she? Where? Where? As though moving in a dream, she sank to a chair. The room was losing shape. It was dark and getting darker, and there was nothing to be done about it. She could not lift her hand to light a lamp. Suddenly, closing her eyes, she felt an upward surge, like a diver emerging from some deeper, greener depth. In times of terror or immense distress, there are moments when the mind waits, as though for a revelation, while a skein of calm is woven over a thought. It's like sleep or a supernatural trance, and during this lull one is aware of a force of quiet reasoning. Well, what if she had never really known a girl named Miriam? That she had been foolishly frightened on the street. In the end, like everything else, it was of no importance. For the only thing she had lost to Miriam was her identity. But now she knew she had found again the person who lived in this room, who cooked her own meals, who owned a canary, who was someone she could trust and believe in. Mrs. H. T. Miller. Listening in contentment, she became aware of a double sound, a bureau drawer opening and closing. She seemed to hear it long after completion, opening and closing. 
then gradually the harshness of it was replaced by a murmur of silk dress, and this, delicately faint, was moving nearer and swelling in intensity, till the walls trembled with the vibration of the room, and it was caving under a wall of whispers. Mrs. Miller stiffened and opened her eyes to a dull, direct stare. Hello, said Miriam. So that was the first half of Truman Capote's My Side of the Matter. And I hope it was soothing. Um, I've got a bit of a scratchy throat at the moment. So I hope the husk, I hope the husk was really relaxing for you guys. Because it was not for me. Um, but I will continue reading the next 25 pages tomorrow. Because um, like I said, it's really short. And it's, I think the second half is kind of unrelated to the first half actually. Um, I think it could be a small, like two short stories. Um, but let me know what you thought. How can I improve my Annie SMR, as someone coined it? Um, let me know. Thanks for listening. Sleep well. Well, have a good day. You know, whatever. Whatever you're doing. Have, um, it's going to be okay. Bye, guys.